Father, we thank you for precious young lives and the, and the vision and future that you have and that the plans that you have. For you are a God of generations and you're always looking forward to the next generation and the generations that are beyond that. So, Father, now we, we thank you that you've come to meet with us today. And, Father, we now turn to your word and we are trusting the spirit of the living God to take the words that you have uttered through this word and to speak them by your spirit as best I am enabled to trust myself to you. That the words that come forth from my mouth would not be mine, it might be my understanding, but be taken by the spirit of the living God and to speak them and deposit them into our lives that each person here may hear what they need to hear today. And only you can do that through the Holy Spirit. And as always, he gets all the praise and all the glory for all that's done today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I'm going to do a message. I may finish, I may finish it today. I may not. Um, that's been in my heart to share with you for a few weeks. And every time I go to do it, something else comes in my heart that's more urgent. So I'm gonna, we're going to do this today. I want to talk to you this morning. I used to do a course in the school of ministry we had. One of my favorite courses to teach is, was on the blood covenant. It's the, it's the foundation of the relationships that God has with us and has always had with His people. And we're going to talk a little bit about it, then I want to tell you a story. I want to read a story to you out of Second Samuel that, that epitomizes what God has done for us and the, and the relationship that God wants to has, has paid for and wants to have with each and every one of us. God is a God of covenant. And, and we, in, the, in our Western culture, we don't have quite the understanding of that, that, that many of our brothers and sisters in the Eastern, in the Eastern uh, Hemisphere tend to have because they're more rooted in this. But covenant comes from an experience that man grew up with that basically came from the realization we can't trust one another. That went over big. <laughs> Fallen man can't fully trust one another. The reason we're not more open with one another, the reason we're not more vulnerable with one another is because we don't trust one another with the most precious inner parts of our hearts and our lives. So we come to church and we say, how are you? I say, I'm blessed. You say, I'm blessed too. Praise God. Well, we're all blessed by faith. But sometimes there are people around us that are struggling and they're afraid to open up and tell you what's going on because they're not sure what you're going to do with it. I wasn't planning to go in this direction at all. So you've got God who is perfect, God who never lies, God whose word is truth itself. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. Jesus did not say that God tells the truth. Jesus said his word is truth or we can turn it around the other way truth is whatever God said my mother used to say I'm the authority in this house if I say up is, up, up is down then it's down <laughs> it's because I said so well she didn't have the power to change up from down one color to another color good to bad but God does so truth is whatever God says. And so, so God cannot lie. But God is having a relationship, establishing a relationship with, with people really through a, a nation that he formed for himself, the nation of Israel that he formed through a relationship with one man, Abram. 
whose later became Abraham. So God approaches Abraham in Genesis 15. We're not going to turn there because we, we, it was a 10-week course and I don't want to try to do it today. <laughs> um, and, God, and, God, and God makes a promise to him. He said, I will be your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abraham recognized something in that because he said, what am I going to get out of this? So he realized God was offering something to him. And then Abraham says to God, he says, because I'm childless, my wife has not been able to bear me any children, and the heir that's in my, the only heir I have now is my servant Eleazar, because that was the practice in those days. If you did not have a male heir born to you, in order for all of you had worked for to go to somebody, you adopted your most trusted servant, and they became your son, and they received it. So Abraham's saying, I don't have a child born of our, of, of our bodies, so I have had to chose and adopt, my plan is to adopt this servant of mine. And God's answer was to take him out in the fields at night and have him look up at all the stars, and he said, that man's not going to be your heir, but your heirs are going to be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. So God made this an enormous promise to Abraham, a man who was at that point 75 years old, so his body was beyond life-producing capability, and his wife was 65, and she'd been barren her whole life. And God is talking about not just a son born to you, but God's trying to show him a vision for his life that's as numerous as the stars of the heaven, and Abraham's beyond, that's beyond his ability to believe. So what does God do? God puts him to sleep. And God takes him through a series of exercises, which I don't have time to go through them with you, but they amount to the custom that peoples of that day had for entering into a blood covenant. And there were different elements of it. Sometimes they would, it was, it was well, I'll go back and give you a background to covenant. A covenant is different than a contract. You'll often read books on covenant and blood covenant, and they usually start with the idea that a covenant is like a contract. Well, I'm a, I was a lawyer for over 20 years, and I, my understanding of these things is always rooted in my legal training. And a, and a contract is simply an exchange of promises. So if you and I are going to, if I'm going to hire you to do some work around my house, and I say, I'll pay you this amount, and you're going to do this amount of work, we can write it, put it out in writing and sign it, and all we've done is exchange promises, and that's a binding contract. But there's no security to that. But if you ever bought a house and you had to go to a bank to borrow money, you didn't just sign a contract. That promissory note is a contract. They said, I'll, get, I'll lend you $100,000, and you say, I promise to pay it back with interest, and these are the terms on which you're going to pay it back. And they said, yeah, but we want something more than that. We love you, we appreciate you, we know you're a great customer of ours, but... People have been known to not pay us. So we want something more than just your promise. We want a mortgage. In other words, we want you to deed to us your interest in that property you're buying as security that if you don't pay us, we get your house. That's more than a contract. That's a covenant. In fact, if you read through your mortgage terms, there are mortgage covenants. So a covenant 
is when you make promises, but you give something as a pledge, as a guarantee, to show that, to do two things, show you are serious enough about this to give a promise, to give something tangible, and it's a further security that if you don't perform your promise, then, you're gonna, then you forfeit your interest in that security. And I won't ask you if you've ever had that experience, because I'm sure some of you have, and that's unfortunate. But God is gracious and will redeem you. So here you've got God, who cannot lie, who created everything, including this man who's making this promise, which is beyond this man's ability to grasp. And God understands, see, this is what I want you to see. God understands how hard it was for him to trust God and take God at his word. So God says, okay, I'll come down to you at your terms, and I'm going to enter into something with you that you do understand. I'll enter into you a covenant. Now, in the legal profession, there are different kinds of covenants. There's a, there's a, there are covenants where what you pledge in this agreement is, is your talent, your ability, or you pledge some money and you, for a business venture, and those are called partnerships. And what you pledged is whatever it is you put into this. But the highest type of covenant back in the times we're talking about was a blood covenant. And the reason it was a blood covenant is what you did is you pledged your blood. Because you, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Leviticus, it says the life is in the blood. So when we talk about the blood of Christ, the blood that flowed from His veins, we're talking about His life. We're talking about His life. So a blood covenant is where I make a promise to you and you make a promise to me. And in order to back this up, we pledge our blood, our life, and very often one of the primary parts of this is they would cut their body somewhere, whether it was on the hand or the wrist or the forehead or their chest, and they would take that blood and they would intermingle it. Now, nowadays, with what we know about what can be transferred, that's kind of scary, but they would intermingle their blood so that now my blood was running in your veins along with your blood was now running in my veins. And as some of you grew up, as you know, have friends growing up, we, we call them blood brothers. But what it meant was you pledged your life. And that had several aspects to it. One of the basic ones is if I, if I break my agreement, I owe you my life. You have the right to kill me. Or I will sacrifice my life for you. So God's looking at Abraham trying to show him how he can believe this incredible promise that God has made to him. So what God does, it ought to be enough if God just says, I promise it. But God knowing what this man was like, God knowing what we're like, God knowing how weak we are in our faith, God knowing how much we don't trust each other, and therefore we don't really trust God, God came down to man to meet him on his terms by literally entering into a blood covenant with this man Abraham and the dream he had while he was asleep and we don't know whether it was a dream or what actually happened were various elements of cutting entering into this covenant if you read Genesis 15 you'll see some of them so one of the practices was they would take animals and they would cut the animal down this is not pleasant to hear but this was a serious thing that got in their senses how serious this was they would take animals and would literally split them down the middle and lay the halves open And you can only begin to imagine how bloody that was. And then the principles that were going to execute this covenant would lock arms and arms. And often they would be from two different families. 
They might be from two different tribes. They may be from two different communities. And they had a mutual need for entering into this covenant. So the leaders would lock arms and they would walk in a figurate pattern around them, up through the middle of these carcasses, tramping through the blood, and then down around the outside. And they would do that several times. They would often exchange clothing. They may exchange swords or or armor. They may exchange their cloak, which represented their personality. And all of it was signifying this was an exchange of my identity, my personality, and my life to you so that we are bound together as one. We were separate before, but we're now one. And here you have in Genesis 15, and then again in 17, and on throughout that, God entering into a blood covenant with a human being. Why? To instill in... Because Abraham understood what this meant. God's saying, I have pledged my life to you to back up my word. So that's a background of what a blood covenant is. And the reason it's the highest type of covenant is because it's, it's, it's guaranteed by the life of the individuals that have entered into it. But there's another concept, which is really what we're going to look at today. Because when you have large groups of people, whether a large tribe or a large family or a nation, you couldn't really have everybody go through this exercise of cutting their hand or their forehead, of sharing food. Because uh, by the way, the end of this process, they would stand up and they would recite the benefits, the blessings and the curses of this covenant. They would recite what you're each going to get out of this, what you're pledging to each, promising to each other, but then they would recite what's going to happen if one of you broke it. And then it would end with a covenant meal to celebrate it. And often that covenant meal consisted of bread and wine. And maybe now you can see where the root of communion comes in. We'll talk about that another time. So, all the individuals in the family, all the individuals in the tribe, all the individuals <coughs> couldn't go through this ceremony, but it was done on their behalf. And it was done by whoever was the head of that family or tribe, had the, the top authority, and they were known as covenant heads. They entered into the covenant with the other tribe, nation, family, on behalf of their whole family, nation, or tribe. <coughs> even though the rest of the tribe, nation, or family didn't go through the exercise, they were participants in it. But one of the key elements of this concept is that not only did it affect, not only did it bind, not only did it benefit everyone that was alive then in their family, their tribe, or their nation, but it was also for the benefit of and binding upon everyone who was ever thereafter born in that family, tribe, or nation. So with that by way of background, we're going to begin to look at a story in the Bible, which is really what I wanted to get to. We're going to look at a story of two individuals, David, David who became King David, David, who right before the story we're going to read today, David had just, was a little boy, was a young man. His, his nation was at battle with the Philistines, as they often were. And, and, and his brothers are all in, in the battle. 
And his father says, look, I need you to send a care package out to my kids and check on how they are. So he pulls David off of the field because he was tending his father's sheep and sends him to the battle line to visit his brothers and to take some food to them. Well, he's out there. Here's the story of David and Goliath. He sees Goliath threatening the people and David, David um, eventually defeats this Goliath when all the army was scared of him and hiding. And so this story picks up right after that. So if David is one of the participants in the story. David at this point is a young man, young boy, probably 17, 18 years old. He may not even be that old. He's just defeated the enemy of Israel. So he's known, he's known now to the soldiers. He's known now to Saul, who was king. Saul was the first king. And Saul now recognizes there's something special about this boy. So he wants to bring him into his house. But then he goes out to battle with Saul and, and finds out that David is better, better at just killing the enemy than even Saul is. So when they come back from the battlefield, Saul is hearing Saul killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands, and Saul begins to be jealous. Also by way of background, Saul at this point was backslidden. Saul had been chosen by God because the people demanded a king. God wanted to be their king. Saul demanded to be a king. Saul was their king, and Saul disobeyed God on a number of occasions, and God just wiped his hands and said, I may, I'm sorry I ever picked him, and Saul knows this, and Saul has now gotten to the point where instead of hearing from the Spirit of God, he's going to a witch to get directions, because he knows he needs to hear from something, someone that can see beyond him. So that's the background. Saul had a number of sons, but the son we're going to look at is Jonathan. So this is a story of David and Jonathan. David is this young boy who's now in Saul's palace, also fighting for Saul, but now Saul's determined to kill him. And then Jonathan, who is Saul's son, but he's different than his father. He's different than all his brothers and sisters. So in that background where there's tension now, where King Saul is is really trying to destroy David, we're going to pick up with this story. In fact, let's just kind of... Uh, excuse me, before that. Let's go to 1 Samuel 18. Now when he finished speaking to Saul, this is the other background to this, the soul of Saul, of Jonathan, was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now without the background of what we've talked about, you might not really understand what that means. But the Hebrew word there means, knit means to make a covenant. It's the Hebrew word kashar, which means to bind up or tie together. So what this is literally saying is Jonathan and David cut a covenant together. And Jonathan loved David as his own soul because they were now really one. They had entered into a covenant together. Go down to verse 2. Keep going. So Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore as David. And Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and to his bow and belt. Stop there a second. What that signifies here is, again, Jonathan is saying, my purse, who I am now, is who you are. I'm giving you my robe, which represents my personality. His armor represents a commitment that I will, I've sworn my life to protect you. Keep in mind, his father's the one that's trying to kill him. And his sword and his bow and his belt. Again, I don't have time to get into all the, ram, the details of ramifications of this. 
So here's, here's some background here. And they probably cut themselves. We don't know that. Saul and David are opposites. David is unlikely to ever have entered into a covenant with Saul's family. Saul, Jonathan's father, is trying to kill David. David was a man after God's own heart. Saul was in rebellion against God. Although Jonathan's qualities were not in his family, he would be treated on the basis of a covenant because Jonathan had entered into a covenant for them. Now, go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Jonathan has a son. And his son's name is Mephibosheth. We won't give you a test on that. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul... Now, what's happened here is Saul and his son Jonathan have been killed in battle. And the people have come and they've chosen David to be king in place of Saul. Now the practice in those days, in fact it actually happened here, is that when a new king took over, most likely he would track down the sons of his predecessor and have them executed because the only chance of rising up to take the throne back from him was the children of the man he replaced. And in fact, what happens here is that some, some of David's supporters go do that. They go execute some of Saul's children, sons. So, background here. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. When he was five years old, the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So the news has come. This is a young boy. And he's got a house, he's got a, a, a nanny that's watching him. And the, oh my Lord, the news has come that, that, that his father and his grandfather have been killed and his first thought of his nanny is they're going to come from this little boy also. So what happens is, and the nurse takes him and fleds and it happened as she made haste to flee that she drops him and his legs are broken and he becomes na- lame. She takes him to this distant community off in the wilderness called Lodabar. Now we're going to go to 2 Samuel 9. And we're going to pick up now. David is now king. He's established his kingdom. And now David is, is secure now. Look what happens. And David said, Is there still anyone who's left from the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Again, without some depth of understanding, this just looks like a nice sentiment that David had for this young boy. But that's not what's going on here. David said, Is there anyone left from the house of Saul that I may show kindness? Now the word kindness doesn't even begin to translate what the underlying Hebrew word. This, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. This word that underlies, the the word that's actually in Hebrew is the Hebrew word chesed. In the notes it's H-E-S-E-D, but it's actually C-H-E-S-E-D. It is the equivalent in power and significance to the New Testament word grace. It refers to God's covenant loving kindness, but His absolute commitment and faithfulness from His end. In the Psalms it says his loving kindness is better than life. It's the same word. Wherever you see loving kindness, kindness, benevolence, it's this word, chassid. I had a Jewish partner, several Jewish partners, when I was practicing law, and one of them was a devout, so I knew that he knew Hebrew. And I asked him about this word, chassid. 
What does that mean to you? And he just smiled. He said, my grandmother used to talk about this word. And when she talked about this word, tears would well up in her eyes. So it's not just a word that's a concept. It had an emotional connection of God's... The story of the Old Testament, God's relationship with Israel is the story of a seed. They were... They were unfaithful over and over and over again, and yet God remained faithful to them. It's not just His faithfulness, it's His heart loving poured out on them. Whatever it takes, whatever you need, I have committed myself for your benefit, even if I don't receive that back from you. That's the depths of this word. And so Samuel's writing here, that I may show chesed, why? Because of Jonathan. So John, David now is secure. He wants to go take this Hasid. He wants to take this covenant loving commitment and he wants to find any one of Jonathan's children because he wants to show it to them because of the covenant he made with Jonathan. Next verse. And there's a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. When Ziba had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, Here am I at your service. Verse 3. And the king said, Is there not someone of the house of Saul to whom I might shine this kindness? Here's that same covenant loving word. It's not just the commitment. It's the loving, faithful commitment of God. Now he's not going to show the, now he's going to show the kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, Yes, there's still a son of Jonathan who's, labeled, who's lame in his feet. Keep going. So the king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said, he's indeed in the house of Micah, in the, of a meal in Lodabar. So the king sent and brought him out of the house of Micah, the son of Emil, to Lodabar. Now you can imagine what's going on every day. One, now that this nurse has heard that the, the enemy of their grandfather and of their father is now king, they, and they've heard that his other uncles have been killed. He lives in fear that they're going to be discovered and that David's going to come and hunt them down and kill them. And one day they get up and the ground begins to rumble and the clouds, the dust and the horizon begins to stir up and they hear a pounding of hoofs because David didn't just come and do anything lightly. And representatives of the king show up and said, Are you the son of Jonathan? And he's afraid, and so they take him back. You can imagine what's going on in his mind. So David sent him, brought him to the house of Micah. Okay, verse 6. When Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come into David, look at this, he fell on his face and prostrated him, and David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear. So obviously he was afraid. For I will surely show you chasid, because of Jonathan, your father's sake, not because of you, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and so you shall eat table at, bread at my table continually. And, and he's trying to process this now. So he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that I should be looked upon as a dead dog as I am? So in he, Mephibosheth's image of himself, in the how he thinks he's being seen by this king who's all-powerful now is that I'm a dead dog. Why am I a dead dog? Because of my family lineage. We were your enemies. So he's having trouble 
believing that he can trust what David's offering to him. Verse 9. And the king doesn't even listen to this. He called Ziba, Saul's servants, and said to him, I've given your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. He's restoring to him what would have been his if he had naturally succeeded to the throne. And why is he doing this? Because of a covenant that David had made with this boy's father who's now dead. And you, therefore, and your sons and your servants, this is talking to the uh, Saul's servant, shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so your servant will do. But as for Mephibosheth, the king said, he shall eat at my table, look at this, as one of my sons. The king's table was reserved for his immediate family. And here you have a young boy whose lineage, whose history comes from the enemy of the king, the king who tried to destroy him and kill him out of jealousy. And David is saying, I'm going to treat you as one of my sons and you will always have a place at my table as one of my sons. Why? Keep going. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Michael, who dwelt in the house of Ziba, were servants. So, hold that a second. Why? All of this is because is because David had entered into a blood covenant with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. Remember I said covenant head? So Mephibosheth is now reaping the benefit of a covenant that David had entered into with Mephibosheth's father. Mephibosheth wasn't born when they entered into this covenant. But David is honoring the covenant by treating Mephibosheth the way he treated Jonathan because Mephibosheth because Jonathan was the covenant head for his whole family and this is the verse I love this is where this all was inspired so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem and he ate continually at the king's table why did the Holy Spirit put this last sentence in there and he was lame in both his feet He could do nothing for King David. He couldn't serve him. He couldn't wait on him. He couldn't go travel somewhere. He was so, he was so helpless, he had to be brought to the table. But he was invited at the table as a son of the king because the king had entered into a blood covenant with the covenant head of Mephibosheth. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to, take, I'm going to have to rush through this. How does that affect us? Now these are familiar verses. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law 
having become a curse for us, for it written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham. When God entered into a covenant with Abraham, he blessed Abraham out of this covenant. And now the Bible is telling us that the blessing of Abraham, that God entered into this covenant with Abraham and blessed him, that that might come upon us in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I wish we had time to go into that this morning. Brethren, I'm not speaking in the matter of men. This is all that it, through, though it's only a man's covenant, yet it's confirmed and no one annuls it or adds to it. Keep going. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. So there was a covenant made between God and his seed. And he does not, look at this, and he does not say, and to seeds, a plural. As of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So the covenant God had with Abraham was to hold place until God could cut the real covenant that he had intended. So what happens is, God cuts a covenant with fallen man, by entering into a blood covenant with his son, the second person of the Godhead. And that covenant was cut on Calvary's hill when his hands were pierced and his side was pierced and the crown of thorns was forced on his head and his blood flowed. It wasn't just the blood of a sacrifice. It was the blood of a covenant that God was entering into with mankind that would accept it. Verse 17. And this I say that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God. It was confirmed in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect for the inheritances of the law, that is of law, is no promise. God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now remember, covenant heads, God the Father, the righteous King, enters into a blood covenant with His sinless Son, cuts that covenant, and that covenant is as secure as the faithfulness of the covenant's heads. So in order for this covenant to break, Either God the Father has to break the covenant or God the Son has to break the covenant. That's how secure the, this covenant is. And when you come to Christ and you are born again, and in Greek that word means not just born again, but born from above, and God sends His Spirit to live in you, you now are born under the family of the covenant head of Christ, who is the seed that God entered into the covenant with. So that means you and I are like Mephibosheth, born long after our covenant head cut the covenant. But because we're born into his family, we are born with the full benefits as a son, just as much a son of God as Christ Jesus is a son of God. I wouldn't dare say that if the scriptures weren't full of that. 
Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. And He sent the Spirit of God into our, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You and I are like Mephibosheth. We were born into this world under a king, like Saul, who was in rebellion against God. But God loved you so much that He entered into a covenant with a second Adam. And although that Adam didn't need, Christ didn't need a covenant with God the Father, you and I did. So He took our sin upon Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God because we're in Christ who is the righteousness of God. And so you and I, still struggling with our own weaknesses, still trying to measure up, still trying to catch up, still trying to to strive to be what we need to be, don't understand that on your best day, in God's eyes, you're lame in both your feet. And you still need God's grace. But there's room at the table for you because you are a child of the living God through your covenant head, Christ Jesus. My life changed when it dawned on me in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Paul is saying that we might become the righteousness of God. the righteousness of God. In God's eyes, you are as righteous as Christ Jesus this morning, if you're in Christ. Not because you've been so good, but because you're in the one who's righteous. See, Christ is not just in heaven giving gifts. He came to live in you and to live in me through the Holy Spirit. And when you become one with Christ, you become who He is. And He becomes who you are. That's hard to grasp. So whatever He is, if you're in Christ, you're in Him, and you're whatever He is. Now, we still have to live and catch up to that reality. But if you don't understand to start out with that you're not trying to become righteous in God's eyes, All you need to do is be in Christ, the righteous one, and you have His robe on just as much as His robe of righteousness is on. And now the Spirit of God is in you to enable you to... Now you're empowered to put aside all those things that have distracted you and pulled you, try to pull you away. But if you don't start with the understanding that when you come to Christ you literally are being brought in union with Him. And that's the essence of blood covenant, is that the two have now become one. The only real example we have of this on the earth is that of the covenant of marriage, where the two now become one. You were separate from God, but in Christ, you've now become one with Him. And the security of that covenant is not you, but it's the righteous one who cut the covenant as your covenant head on your behalf. Let's pray.
Father, many of us were raised in religious traditions and teachings that taught us that everything we get from God is based on what we earn and how good we are. But your word tells us that we have been recreated in Christ Jesus unto good works, not because of our good works. And so we ask you today to take this understanding of what you have done for us in Christ and to make it real to us, not just in our minds, but down in our hearts, so that we may begin to walk in the freedom and the peace that he paid so dearly for, so that we're free now to begin to live out our lives for him, for the surrender that we sang so preciously about earlier today. And my prayer, Father, is that what we've heard today by your Spirit will begin to sink in and to take root in our hearts and to begin to grow up and begin to produce in us a harvest, 30, 60, and 100 fold. And for this, we thank you for in advance in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.